host, Robbie Martin. Today we will be interviewing journalist Mark Ames, founder of The Exile, Exiled Online, senior editor for Not Safe for Work, and regular contributor to Pando Daily. Mark lived in Russia and eventually started working on the satirical and hard-hitting paper The Exile in the late 90s until it was effectively shut down by Moscow's media censorship arm in 2008. Recently, Mark has written regularly on the use of libertarian ideology to help enable vulture capitalism and how publications like Reason Magazine were running Holocaust denial-related periodicals in the 70s. Silicon Valley has also been a focus of Mark's where he's uncovered corrupt hiring practices and wage fixing for beloved Silicon Valley companies like Apple, Google, and even parts of the movie special effects tech sector. His most controversial stories recently have revolved around the billionaire Piero Midiar, who is the founder of First Look Media. For the next hour, I will be having a discussion with Mark about his experience in Russia, the completely ignored corrupt Boris Yeltsin administration after the fall of the Soviet Union, and the complexities of the current information war in general. Hi, Mark. How are you doing? Uh, good, I guess. How are you doing, Robbie? <laughs> good. <laughs> I guess is better than, than not yeah. good. Just trying to sound chipper here, so yeah. <laughs> I guess start out by telling me a little bit about how you ended up with the Exile, and you, you were involved in its formation as well, yeah. and which was a paper operated out of Russia during the post-Soviet, I think around 1997. Yeah, that's when, uh, that's when we launched it. So um, I basically fled America in the, in the start of the Clinton years. Um, I, I, I ended the Bush one year. I just, uh, I don't know, it just seemed like some kind of version of hell or something. So I, I, I and, and as a, somebody wanted to, to write and, um, and was interested in, in, things Russia, I got interested, you know, sort of the end of my college years. Um, I decided to head out to Russia. I had a couple of connections and, um, and that was, so that was, I first went out there in 1993, um, at the end of 93. And, um, right when I arrived, so this was, you know, Russia, Russia at that time was the laboratory, uh, uh, where neoliberalism was going to completely work its magic on, you know, our former enemy. And it was, and Moscow was the, you know, the, the capital of a collapsed empire. And it looked like a collapsed empire's capital. Um, so, um, so I went out there and, um, moved into the district, into the, uh, Krasnodarsky district, which happened to be right near where the parliament building was, the white house as it's called. And like two weeks after, a week or two after I moved there, uh, Yeltsin sent tanks and helicopters and guns, you know, to attack his, uh, his own parliament building, which didn't want to go along with his, his version of the radical free market reforms. And, um, you know, a lot of people were killed. Um, and it was all with the complete full backing of, of the Clinton administration and the IMF and the World Bank and, you know, the New York Times editorial page and everybody. It was a bizarre thing to sort of behold. And um, uh, in any event, um, so that's kind of, that was sort of my baptism of fire in Russia, like right when I arrived. Uh, and this battle went around all in my district. It was, it was incredible. And um, so anyway, I worked a few jobs, but eventually, and I, and I wound up sort of taking over this, this uh, uh, 
real estate paper for expats called Living Here. And I turned it into a satirical newspaper. And then, um, and then I started up the exile in early 1987 with a Russian publisher. Um, and then Matt Taby joined. He was just coming out. And uh, we were almost going to compete against each other, which seemed ridiculous. So he joined uh, the exile, like the third issue. Um, and, uh, um, and that was, so I would say when he joined, this was after Yeltsin's fake victory in 1996 and sort of like the complete cementing of, of, you know, the neoliberal victory or so it seemed in Russia. Um, and, you know, at that time, there was just no opposition, no, there were, there were no voices speaking out against what was going on, despite the fact that um, the country was being, you know, raped and plundered blind. And uh, I mean, by, you know, by Russians, but, but really with the absolute connivance of and assistance of uh, the international community, as it's called, really, the Washington, D.C. Um, and, uh, and it was just, it was a bizarre thing to behold. I mean, I remember even when I was at the, at the satirical newspaper just before the exile, I wrote something about how, you know, we are all, there are all these expats and all these people there and, um, making money and sort of snickering at Russians and having a good time. And, and, you know, we knew that Russians were dying like flies. I mean, the, the, the rate, the, 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 the average Russian male's life expectancy dropped from 68 to 56 years uh, in that period. Suicide went wow. through the roof. I mean, it was, it was unlike almost anything, you know, in the 20th century. Um, and, uh, and so I, you know, I, I wrote about it. I, I called it a kind of a genocide. Um, and everybody started calling me a communist. I wound up getting attacked by all, even friends of mine for being a communist. And, um, uh, you know, when, and I just, I just realized at that time that, um, kind of just telling simple flat truths that are right in front of your eyes, like a, about a place like that, where people had so much kind of um, philosophically and emotionally and, and monetarily invested. Um, it was just sort of the flats truth was kind of like the, the most dangerous and, and the most interesting thing. So, um, so yeah. Uh, that's really fascinating that, I mean, you, I've read enough of your writings where you talk about the Yeltsin administration and it's just so interesting to think back to that era the Yeltsin administration in Russia was portrayed here as just sort of being this, he's a fun loving guy. He, yeah, he drinks, but he, you know, he's, he's fun. He's jolly. It was kind of like this. Those Russians, like, they all drink. Yeah. There was like yeah. nothing negative that I can remember at all in the U S press about him. I mean, no. maybe there, there were some things, but it was mostly really positive. Like very um, positive because like, he liked, he did what we wanted him to do, yeah. you know, and he didn't threaten us. He really didn't. I mean, I mean, it's probably one of the last times I can remember the U.S. media sort of glorifying a, the a foreign leader of another country. You know, I, I mean, in, in that that way, like not, not a puppet leader. I mean, maybe, maybe arguably in some ways he was sort of a, a puppet of oligarchs, but, you know, not like Karzai or something in Afghanistan. Well, it was more it, it, I wouldn't quite say he was a puppet, though. He, he, he essentially served as one de facto. He was he was just he was. um mostly dead you know so so we could walk uh, so anybody could walk all over him in the country i mean this is a guy who suffered more heart attacks uh 
I mean, then, you know, then like a, I, I can't even imagine my, I can't come up with a fucking analogy right now. You know? <laughs> Certainly a lot more than Dick Cheney ever suffered, you know, without any of the, uh, um, any of the good healthcare to go with it. The guy had like a, you know, an artificial heart and artificial everything in his, and, and they just kept him alive by constantly pumping him full of more vodka and, uh, and throwing makeup on his face. And, um, you know, uh, and then robbing, robbing the country blind. And it was, I mean, it was a really, you know, my understanding, it was a really, um, it was, it was nihilism applied, you know? And, and so that was, I mean, that was kind of the approach of the exile, my approach coming out of, you know, having been really influenced by, by, you know, the, the, the post hippie, like really the punk era. I don't know. It's, it's kind of, you know, formed a lot of my worldview. Um, and, uh, but but you didn't really see it. It was more of an aesthetic thing. And then you go to Russia, and it was actually that nihilism was what was going on all around you. It was an absolute horrific, you know, um, funny and horrible at the same time, depending on how close you allowed yourself to get to it and how much you opened yourself up to it. Um, you know, reality there. So, yeah. So you transitioned from basically being into like, the music scene out in Berkeley and to, to seeing what, you know, what some, maybe some of these lyrics were actually referring to in like a real, uh, yeah, except that the lyrics tactile were, sense. It was also kind of like fun and middle-class compared to what went on of in course. the real thing. Like it, the real thing is real things actually weirdly like sentimental. If I were to put a music track to what went on in the nineties with all the killings, death, rape, um, you know, starvation, everything that went on, the music track would be some really hokey, sentimental karaoke track, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and, and it really was, I mean, um, and the, you know, the gangsters, they do love their, their sort of just gauche, sentimental, mawkish, karaoke music um and 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 kind of better captures the the absolute insanity of it you ended up leaving the exile in 2008 which happened to be i mean i don't know if the timing was around the same time but 2008 was the time when the conflict broke out between russia and georgia over osetia did that have anything to do with you leave no so no no so what happened was um no we were there's a new agency and it's it's called Roskomnadzor maybe you've heard of it by now I'm not sure it's it's still a Kremlin agency that's in charge of sort of uh, really internet and media censorship and and protection of Russian culture and it was it was set up um in early 2008 I believe and I believe actually we were one of the first victims of it I mean we were you know by any standard the exile was a pretty very aggressive um, newspaper. Our satire is very aggressive and offensive. Our investigative journalism is very aggressive. Our criticism is aggressive. We had the most aggressive Putin, um, uh, you know, dissident uh, in the whole country, Edward Lomonov writing for us. I mean, Lomonov was the first dissident that Putin put in jail. Um, and so, you know, when this agency was set up and they they pretty much uh, you know, brought enough of their own media online. Somehow we, we just were one of the first people that fell, that landed on their list. And the satire is part of it. Uh, you know, Russians understand the power of satire. Um, and, uh, I mean, they have a history, you know, of the greatest satirists of all with going back to Gogol and they, and they kill their satirists there, you know, going back to Stalin and Gogol. And, um, and so they sent for, you know, they sent for, 
Kremlin agents into our office and did an editorial audit. It was called an unplanned, urgent editorial audit. It was scary. Um, and uh, and our paper collapsed. Uh, that's what happens. I mean, our investors just stopped immediately, stopped taking my calls. And it was just it was over like in a flash. Um, and then I, I kind of fought it. I stayed there. This would be like May or June of 2008. I stayed there. I fought it um, in the media a bit. I, I didn't want you know, it'd be crazy to have an aggressive newspaper and then to sort of scamper away when you get attacked. Uh, and then and then the Russian opposition started kind of conflating their cause with my cause, which made me a little nervous because I'm not um, I mean, I'm not Ru- like they're fighting. My fight's different. I'm not Russian. I'm not a Russian liberal. Um, and um, in any event, I, I was I wound up getting into a a radio debate with uh, this guy, Robert Schlegel, who's a, who's an MP uh, in the in the Duma in Putin's party. But he was the head of um Nashi, which is the Putin youth group. And he's, I mean, you know, there's a whole wide variation of the kind of people who would be allied with Putin, you know, and this guy's on the extreme end of total assholes. <laughs> and I mean, just a real fascist prick, you know, and, and he was, he, he started screaming on radio about me and screaming that I'm an extremist. I was charged with extremism. Well, I wasn't, I was investigated for extremism among other things. And extremism in Russia is equivalent to terrorism. Jesus. And uh, so it was scary. And then after after he was ha- had this shouting fit about me and, and saying on radio that uh, because the announcer was saying, well, he's also been very, you know, vocal but, uh, uh, in opposition to um, to Clinton years and then and to Bush and Bush's war. And he said, how can you be opposed to your president's wars? You should support your president's wars. <laughs> like, this is the kind of asshole he was. Wow. But in any event, I got some calls after that. And they just, I, I was told in no uncertain terms to just get a duffel bag, get some cash, go straight to the airport, buy a one-way ticket and get the fuck out of the country. So I did that and I stayed away from Russia for a couple of months and just left everything behind and um, finally felt that, you know, it was safe enough to go back and pick up my stuff. And at the worst, they would probably just tell me, uh, they turned me away at the airport, but I didn't really see why they would. I mean, I, I think the whole thing just kind of spun out of control. So I went back, nobody bothered me, and, and I, I went back um, to get my stuff. And when I came back, the war broke out. The Georgians invaded um, Ossetia, and then the Russians were preparing to um, to invade back into Ossetia and, and, uh, and into Georgia. I was pissed at Russia, but, you know, I, I, I'm American, and I, um, I really can't stand the neocons. And, uh, and you could see this sort of false narrative developing right away in the West where even though, you know, and it turned out to be right, you know, Georgia did. I know what Saakashvili was like. I was at the, I was there during the Rose Revolution. He's a hothead and a, and a neocon. And I know that, you know, I, I had great information about how he invaded. And I wound up going down to the war zone and reporting from the war zone. And, um, Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah, I did. I went down to the war zone. I reported, uh, on it and I reported on the Russian side. I, I went down I was, you know, one of very few Western reporters who actually went through. I, I knew some Ossetians. In fact, our general manager at the at the exile uh, was from Ossetia himself. Great guy, um, you know, just a really great guy. And so he had some relatives down there. So I went down there, and um, and then when the war was over, I left, and I haven't been back since. So what you did was you actually maintained your principles and your ethics, and you didn't knee-jerkishly write 
something just anti-Russian simply because of what happened to you from the exile? I mean, I, when, it, when the Georgia conflict broke out. Yeah, you know, you got to go with what's in your gut and what you know. And I, I'm, I'm sure I could have uh, made a, you know, uh, made a little business for myself if I hooked up with the neocons at that point and said, you know, and, and tried to make it seem like, and I, I just, you, you, I'm not good at that. You know, you have to do what you're good at. And I'm, I'm just not good at that, that kind of sleaze. Um, it just, it just, it, I, I have a gag reflex and I guess those people don't have gag reflexes. So they, they can do that. Um, so you're, so you're already aware when this is happening that there were basically neocon agitators in the United States trying to utilize this conflict to basically increase the hostilities between Russia and the United States. Here. Yeah, but I mean, I've been writing about that in the exile as well. Like that had been going on. That had been going on. It kind of it didn't go on at first when Putin first took over because he. Um, he, he was mostly supported by the liberals and the neoliberals. Um, and, and he came out of the neoliberal crowd from St. Petersburg. And, um, and, and at the time, Yeltsin was such a total disaster. And there was this fear that actually um, uh, that a different faction might take power um, and go back and revisit all the privatizations and market economy and so on. So, so the idea was, I mean, it was very open actually, both from, you know, Western commentators and from Russian liberals, we need a Pinochet and everybody had this idea, but he, you know, even Yeltsin's young reform crew, they were all fans of Pinochet and Pinochet's, um, you know, Milton Friedman crowd. Um, and the idea is in order to make this, free market economy work, you may need a, uh, a strong man in the middle. And that's, it's like, you know, that's a Hayek Milton Friedman idea as well. And, um, and so they sort of thought, well, Putin will be that guy. I mean, he was young, vigorous. He came out, he had been vetted by Anatoly Chubias, the, the, the main, uh, the main young reformer, market Bolshevist, Bolshevik, as they called him. Um, and, um, and so he started out, you know, getting mostly decent press, even though he did go after some of the oligarchs early on, but as he said, he would. Um, and then he, you know, and then, and then when 9-11 happened, he was one of the first guys to fly out and meet Bush and everybody here was like, oh, great. We have this, you know, badass Putin on our side. And, um, and then he didn't support the invasion, uh, uh, the war with Iraq. And suddenly we started seeing him as more of a dictator. And uh, but the really the, the big thing was when he um, uh, was when he went to war with Yukos and won. Uh, Yukos is the oil company um, headed by uh, Mikhail Khodorkovsky, who he just let out of jail. Um, that was, I think, when I, I think that was the point when powerful people here sort of understood that that actually we can't really run Russia the way we did for, you know, the previous 15 years and that this guy might be different. And, um, you know, and he might even take our, I mean, when we steal something, we want to then have it, you know, put into law that it's now ours. Or if some banker steals it, like the law, it's gotta be in, in the law that you can't steal it back, but he was starting to steal stuff back and <laughs> give it to, to, to somebody, uh, some other thief, you know, and um, and so suddenly you started hearing the word fascist thrown around and it just kind of started spiraling out from there, I, I, I would say. Um, we just realized he was going to assert himself and assert Russia and Russia started becoming more powerful. And, um, you know, it's, it's hard. I don't know if you remember this, but Russia was 
Russia was was remarkably weak. Russia was so weak in the 90s. I mean, they got their asses kicked by Chechnya. Granted, Chechens are, are great fighters, but but it's a tiny country, you know. Um, they they just couldn't do anything right, and culturally, they they kind of hated themselves. I mean, it was it was uncomfortable to be there. And sometimes, in some situations in the '90s, Russians would tell you just a you know some taxi driver, you, you hail a taxi. The first thing you'll start saying is how his country's shit. They can't do anything right. Um, they need foreigners to run them, you know, all this kind of stuff. In America, everybody's great, everybody's honest, blah, blah, blah. Like, that was that was the way they kind of felt about things then. It's just filled and, with um, self-hatred. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, yeah, that's, uh, that's what happens when you, your, your country and society collapses and everybody's let you down and poverty is everywhere. I mean, life got really, really hard for people. You know, Russians themselves, I think they just, they underwent a serious change. The first big change was, was in, in mid-1999. So this was after their financial markets collapsed and the whole neoliberal thing kind of... Is that also Yeltsin. after the Chechen apartment building? No, no, I, this is, I was going to say, they really changed in a big way that I saw when we started bombing Serbia. That was the first time Russians suddenly thought, wait a minute, maybe we've been selling ourselves short and trusting these guys way too much. They were really, really shocked. They've never really forgotten it. It was a very, you know, I don't think the idiots who, who planned that war in Kosovo still really understand like how much blowback there has been from that in a lot of ways. When that happened, I mean, a lot of people have described that, that the Chechen apartment building bombings is like you know, Russia's nine eleven, mm-hmm. and, and, and of course over here, um, it's become very common to describe that attack as some kind of false flag, mm-hmm. you know, FSB, um, mm-hmm. hatch operation. I mean, what are your thoughts on that uh, just in general? Well, I, you know, I've read a bunch of different accounts of it. My, my, my general thought is that I just, I would not be surprised. And there's certainly good evidence. Um, if there were some, uh, some part of the FSB involved, some, some people, Berezovsky, uh, Yeltsin's people. I mean, look, there was a small crowd of very rich, powerful people who stood to lose everything. Yeltsin, um, was, was on the verge of death. Um, the prime minister Primakov and the mayor of Moscow had allied and they, they were saying openly they were going to put all the oligarchs in jail and probably the Yeltsin family. Um, and, uh, and so, so Yeltsin, before he put Putin in, he put a couple other FSB guys in Stepashin and these guys, you know, they didn't have what Putin had. Um, uh, this is, this is just, you know, if, if we looked at this, not like it's us today, but like it was going on in the Roman empire or something and you're a little more dispassionate about it, then yeah, it makes sense that they would want, um, not just they, but the, but also people on the Chechen side, because the Chechens were having a big internal fight also between the sort of Muscatov and, and the, um, I guess, the more secular people and then the hardcore um, jihadi, uh, you know, kind of Al-Qaeda line people like um, Jamil Basayev. But the, there is good evidence. I mean, there really is good evidence, one of them being that uh, um, in Riazan outside of Moscow after the first couple of apartment bombings um a resident saw some guys in a in a lot of putting some giant sacks 
in the basement of the apartment building. And so um, she took down the license number and she then um, went down and looked and called the police. The police came, saw that it was the same explosive, Gixagon. It's like a, it's like a plastics explosive. Um, they put a ring around Riazan City. They captured these guys. It turned out they were from the FSB headquarters. And what they said afterwards, then this made the news. It got out. And, uh, and so what they said was this was an FSB training exercise. Good job. You oh, it was a drill. It. Yeah, it was a drill. Um, and, and that's never like that whole story is not denied. That's a fact. Um, so, you know, and when I, that happened back in the 90s. That, right? that was 1990. That was all in August, September of 1999. It's interesting because that I mean, just that concept became sort of like conspiracy theory lore in a lot of other stories that happen after that, not even related to Russia, that's just that whole concept of well, a drill, you know, a drill mimicking a real event. Oh, right. right. Yeah. But, you know, and it's why Russian journalists, I know, like when 9-11 happened, their first thought was, oh, this is this is your guys FSB doing your apartment bombings, you know. Um, and, and so they, from their point of view, and, and Russians are a lot more conspiratorial minded and, you know, gives them certain insights, I think, that um, that are, that are really useful. And, and they, and because they're more conspiratorial minded, they're very kind of conspiratorial, um, chess playing, you know, uh, active, I would say as well, you know, um, but, but yeah, they, uh, you know, they, they just assume, no, that's, that's how, that's how shit works. Um, and, uh, but you know, I'm not a hundred percent, I have to be honest, I'm not a hundred percent convinced that all those apartment bombings were FSB. I mean, um, uh, the hell is his name? Uh, Soldatov, uh, Andrei Soldatov. He's like their best FSB dissident journalist. He's still, you know, he's still there and still publishing. And he wrote a great book a couple of years ago about them. And I think Snowden even referenced him recently. <laughs> anyway, in his book, he he says he's, you know, he's definitely not convinced that it was all def- that it was an inside job, false flag. You know, um, so so I. I'd say most, I'd say there's good evidence, but it's not a hundred percent. Yeah. And, and when you get the filtering over here, of course, on the U S side, all, all we're sort of led to believe is that, you know, Putin murdered Litvinenko. He murdered Anna Polovskaya. He, um, you know, he did the apartment building bombings. He's behind the Beslan school siege. I mean, like everything Mm. is sort of portrayed as being, you know, hatched from him directly. And that, I guess that leads me to the Boris Nemtsov murder because it started in the U S media immediately after MH 17 crashed, the U S media rushed to the gates to basically blame Russia for the whole thing. And some of that may have been accurate. Some of it may not have been accurate, but they, but the point was they rushed to get to the media to spread that immediately. Mm -hmm. And they did a similar thing with the Boris Nemtsov murder where they immediately planted the seeds that this was a, a hit, you know, ordered by Vladimir Putin. And then later it sort of evolved into this sort of more vague talking Mm -hmm. point that, well, maybe he didn't have to directly order the hit, but the climate in Russia is such that there are so many people who are loyal to him that he maybe just had to hint at it and other people, other dark actors sort of did it for him. And I, and I've seen that odd variation of that sort of going around in the media more recently. And I was wondering, what are your thoughts on, on that? I mean, I've read your, your, um, your article about him. Yeah. Well, I mean, I I think now the more we know about the Nemtsov 
killing, the more people are now saying it, it was it was disgusting. I thought the way everybody who's a, you know, armchair Putin um, uh, expert immediately blamed Putin. Of course, he ordered it without even thinking rationally about I mean, it's not that Putin's a nice guy or anything, but but you just if you know anything about Russia, the idea that he would whack this big name, but not, you know, Nemtsov doesn't pose a threat to him. He's an annoyance, um, but he definitely doesn't pose a threat. In some ways, he makes Putin look good in uh, domestically. You can say this is the opposition. No one would vote for Nemtsov. <laughs> the idea that he would he would whack him right next to the Kremlin when the whole political purpose and philosophy of, of Putinism is stability, that he's the only, you know, after the utter chaos and hell of the 90s and, and late 80s, um, you know, th- that he would whack him right there rather than, okay, if he was going to whack him, you know, um, arrange a car accident somewhere outside of town or something that doesn't make the country and Putin's hold on, on the country look really um, fragile and weak. And, you know, the, the, the fact is that even the Russian opposition press, press, not politicians, but press also was saying right away, like, this is definitely not something Putin would have ordered. Everyone w- was actually, you know, kind of freaked out by that. And uh, I mean, I remember reading Nemtsov's lawyer himself said, you know, you've got it wrong. I mean, uh, what Putin is probably thinking, if anything, is, my God, they can kill this guy right next to my, you know, my office door, basically. What does that mean when I drive in and out of town every day? Um, who's, who's guarding this? And I think that's probably a lot closer to the truth. Um, uh, on the other hand, Putin, sure, he does deserve, uh, I mean, if he's going to take so much responsibility as the leader who's so great and everything and, you know, and, and, um, so he, he does deserve, uh, to take responsibility for, for things that happen on his watch and for creating, um, a, a climate like that. And, and Yeltsin, but, you know, nobody said this about Yeltsin. Yeltsin definitely deserves to take blame for all of the countless, countless assassinations, murders, and including of liberal opposition people. Um, you know, and Galina Starovoitova was killed under his watch by nationalists in 1998, I believe it was. Um, and I was friends with her, her, her nephew. Um, uh, you know, Vladislav Listiev, the most famous journalist, among many journalists, was gunned down. Um, and he was really gunned down in 94 in order to hand the national television network over to, to Boris Yeltsin's crew. Um, and no one blamed Yeltsin. Then it was more like, oh, well, you know, the transition to market economy and free is very <laughs> difficult. So it's, just, you know, it's, there, there's so much hypocrisy that, um, that it almost gets tiresome calling it out. You know what I mean? It's just like, Jesus Christ. It, it but I mean, no one, barely problem. anyone is, though. I mean, that's... No, the, I'm, the, I'm talking about myself. I yeah, don't. yeah. Well, I mean, that's what's so <laughs> fascinating to me is that you're one of the only people who seems to be educated enough on the Russian situation to actually point a lot of this stuff out. And, and you actually say in your Nemtsov article, you say, during the Yeltsin era, there were so many assassinations and hits on journalists and political figures that no one can even remember them. I mean... I've never heard of any of them. I mean, I was, you know, in my teens in the 90s, but even still, you know, the way that they present Putin as basically this murderer now, I think most average people, if you ask them, they would probably say, yeah, oh yeah, Putin's killed, you know, tons of journalists. And you ask them about Boris Yeltsin, they'd be like, oh yeah, he was that jolly drunk uh, guy that, you know, was friends with Clinton. 
Yeah, well, you know, he's, I mean, he's not our, he doesn't do our bidding. He's not our friend. Um, And, and, you know, he doesn't stand for our values and he doesn't, uh, um, and, and he doesn't represent something exportable. I mean, look, the Soviets had a very powerful, very powerful ideology that was very exportable. And that was actually a lot more exportable than our ideology was. Um, Putinism is not an exportable ideology. Like, you know, Chavez had a much more exportable ideology that, that, you know, that people all over the world could maybe aspire to, um, uh, you know, social democracy and social justice like that. Putinism, I mean, he, he, he does still run an oligarchy. It's just his oligarchy. So like, so my, my point is that unless you're, I mean, the job of a journalist is, I would think, is to just try and tell the truth, you know, what you know. And um, um, but most journalists just want to sort of side with the herd, with the crowd. And and so what they see is that there's there's no there's no Russia lobby. There aren't people here, you know, lobbying for Russia and Russia's cause. There just isn't. Um, and there are all kinds of people who are against. Russia. So so if you if you go against well, besides Russia today, that's probably yeah, exactly. But I mean, you know, I'm saying in our culture and, and in the West and in universities and so on, they're just they're just not much to be gained unless you go in Russia today. Yeah, there's not much to be gained um, by taking up Russia's. I mean, by, by sort of explaining things actually as they are. Um, and there's a lot to be gained by just piling up on Russia because there's a, there's a lot of jobs and a lot of op eds to be published and. You know, it's just that's the that's the economics of it. Of course. I mean, it's just I guess what disturbs me and, and someone else brought this up and I was really surprised to hear her talking about it. I think it was the editor for The Nation magazine and Katrina Vandenhoven. Yeah. yeah. And she was I mean, she was saying some really surprisingly accurate thing. I mean, I've just I never really heard her talk about it before. So maybe I'm just not familiar with her political. She's got outlook. a Russia background and she's Stephen Cohen's her husband. I, I met Katrina. First. Oh, Stephen Cohen's her husband. Yeah. Okay. Well, that kind of I mean, that's, yeah. that helps she was a Russia studies major herself too, okay. like, going way back. Yeah. Well, she, I mean, I don't even remember why I brought that up. <laughs> Sorry. But, um, but no, <laughs> I mean, I, I noticed that Adam Curtis referenced your work recently and he's sort of been dabbling in you know, trying to turn to create some context for what's going on now in Russia or in the Putin administration. He doesn't only point to your work, but he also points to another figure who I've never heard of before, which I'm interested to hear a lot more about him, but um, Vladislav Surkov, mm-hmm. um, who is described as an avant-garde artist who later went into shaping politics. That sounds almost like too weird or good to be true. Is that <laughs> is that actually accurate that this that this avant-garde artist used some of that philosophy for for political spin? Um yeah, definitely it's definitely true. I mean, you know, artists artists don't have to be a good they, they can be just as much shit as anybody else um, oh of course uh, <laughs> I, I know very, i know that very well <laughs> in the bay area yeah, exactly um and of course there's the guy with the funny mustache who is an artist um so you know uh um he he is though a really interesting guy definitely interesting guy um Surkov, he's sort of the the wizard of oz in the kremlin's uh, kind of postmodern virtual virtual propaganda virtual whatever the hell politics and virtual reality that they kind of project you know through their through their 
rather more avant-garde type of um uh of propaganda um i i was just reading that peter pomerantsev's book about it i i have very mixed feelings about his book some of it's I was just gonna some, ask you about him yeah I some keep... of it's really good some of it's but he's got an agenda i i could go on about that but he uh what is it called something the unreality um, of yeah nothing is real and everything is something or other um I, I think the first part of the clause is nothing is real. Um, and, um, it's, 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 I think it's worth reading. Um, it's got some serious flaws. He's got a very good, he's, he's pretty accurate and he's got some very good insights into Surkov and, um, and into, you know, the Kremlin's idea of information war and propaganda and so on. But, but there's no context. You know, there's no context in in the sense that a all of this really grows out of the Yeltsin years with our backing. I mean, Yeltsin's you know the the, the idea of consolidating the entire national television media um, under one president and then bombarding the the population with insane propaganda was first used and deployed in 1996 for Yeltsin's reelection. So Yeltsin was going into the reelection with a five percent rating. So they brought out a bunch of American spin doctors and put them together with <clears throat> these Russian spin doctors, including guys like Surkov. And they um, they got all the television stations behind Yeltsin by handing them sweet assets, you know, banks and whatever the hell. Uh, and then every day on TV, all you saw was that if Yeltsin doesn't win, everybody's going to be hanging from lampposts or in gulags in Magadan. <laughs> Day after day after day, and they still had to steal the election, completely steal it. You know, That's uh, like in in, Ch- in Chechnya, for example, uh, the Chechens. It turned out, even though they'd just been slaughtered by Yeltsin for the past two years, seventy percent of the Chechens voted for Yeltsin, um, and a million <laughs> Chechens went to the polls to vote, even though only five hundred thousand Chechen adults were even left in Chechnya. At that <laughs> oh my point. God! So yeah, it was. So the whole template was created by us and our man Yeltsin that, you know, that was then perfected and, and re-perfected and re-perfected uh, under Putin. And, um, and so that's a lot of what's missing. And then of course the neocons. Well, that, I mean, that's, that's what yeah. I wanted to ask you. I mean, do you think that, do you think that Peter, how do I pronounce his name? Peter Poma, uh, Pomerantsev, he, yeah. he describes himself or he's usually described as a reality TV show producer from Russia or who worked in Russia who later sort of saw through, you know, I mean, you know, in a similar way, he kind of describes himself. Well, he describes himself almost like in a similar way to you, except he wasn't doing a, you know, a satirical or cutting sort of anti-Russian media over there, but he sort of acts like he had sort of a realization where he now could see through all this propaganda. But I guess first, can he be trusted? Because as you said, he doesn't, provide any context of that this happened before the Putin years and that the U.S. definitely played a role in sort of, you know, um, not, I mean, I mean, what you basically just described is, is omitted from a lot of his writings. And I also noticed that he does sort of inexplicably, I mean, he does seem quite intelligent and perceptive. And what surprises me is that time and time again, I see him associating himself with these anti-Russian think tanks like Institute for Modern Russia with the Foreign Policy Initiative, which is basically a project for a new American century. He even testified with Liz Wall um, to that. He's been um, with Michael Weiss and the National Endowment for Democracy. No, it's it's pretty bad. I know. Um, 
the the thing that's so um but he's really uh, good at what he does yeah, so that's why see, that's i mean it's confusing uh, that, that's what confused me and i i finally went and looked into him as I, i'm actually working on a review now um of his book and sort of about him and 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 the new neocons i guess um it was confusing because he's because he's pretty smart and He's definitely trying to be a literary writer in his book, and and sometimes it's good and sometimes it's not. But there's there's so many omissions that it just you know this is the thing the 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 neocons 1.0 and even guys like Jamie Kerchick they're so they're so dumb when they write, but and, and that it's almost acts like a. Uh, like a protective shield because you can't argue with that. You well, can't it's almost argue. intentionally dumb. Yes. Oh yeah, yeah. Because yeah. these guys aren't inherently stupid. Uh, I don't, you know, Bill Crystal and these guys, but their their way of arguing is almost impenetrably thick and stupid. You know. Oh yeah. And Pavarantsev is actually very perceptive, and when he's wants to, he can really, you know, give you some good insights into these things. And so, and then he's got this sort of shaggy. Brooklyn hipster look like, like some of his other neocon buddies. And so it was a little deceptive, but no, I looked into him. Look, he, the book has this very, it's very strange, um, uh, bias in favor of the world bank. And it turns out, I think he was with some world bank think tank. Uh, he makes the world bank guys out to be these scrappy underdogs in Russia. Like, are you fucking kidding me? Um, you know, and, uh, and it turns out he works for, so he's a fellow and he has been for a while for this outfit called the Legatum Institute, uh, or Legatum. I'm not sure how you pronounce it. Um, in Europe, and, right? Uh, yeah. And, and this thing was founded by, these really super secretive vulture capitalists, uh, the Chandler brothers from they're they're originally from New Zealand, but they're, they're basically Monaco based, um, um, vulture, you know, vulture investors. They go into situations, they green mail companies, they go in, they buy up shares, they get a seat in a board, they make a big ruckus. Uh, it drives the price up, you know, or it, they, they create a bunch of chaos. They drive the price up and then they cash out. That's what they do. That's how they make their money. They're vulture capitalists. You might even say sometimes they might inadvertently do some good if they bring some transparency and maybe end some corruption in some company. I, I really doubt it. Um, but that's their, that's their game. They go in where there's a lot of corruption and they see the opportunity there. And when you have a lot of corruption in companies and they, they, they invested, they were actually the largest portfolio, um, foreign portfolio investors in Russia in the 90s and early 2000s. And their, their gig sort of didn't go well in the end. And um, the brothers sort of split into two funds. And one of them um, now runs the Legatum Institute and Legatum Capital, I think is what it is, out, out of Dubai, which is, you know, a great beacon of freedom. And... Um, and, um, you know, Pomerantsev works for basically is basically fronting for a vulture capitalist who wants to get back in and make money again. That's how I look at it. And I find that really sleazy. I mean, I, I read. Um, so I was writing about this. I saw this report that he did with Michael Weiss. Michael Weiss, you know, is the guy that that brought Elizabeth Baggy, um, Elizabeth Obaggy sort of to prominence. He was, he was, he was one of her biggest boosters. She was the fake PhD who was pushing for war in Syria. Michael Weiss is a big promoter of war in Syria. Um, and I guess that gig just sort of went bad. And so suddenly Michael Weiss appears last year with Pomerantsev co-authoring a report for, um, for Legatum Institute in which 
you know, on the one hand, they talk about this this scary, terrifying Russian uh, form of propaganda, which is somehow supposed to threaten us. I don't get that. I mean, it certainly is real in Russia, but the idea that it threatens us is is just fucking horseshit. In any event, um, well, they conflate the two things together. They conflate the domestic propaganda in Russia with like things like Russia Today, which are really totally different kind of mechanisms. In the sense that what Russia Today's success is exploiting the fact that our established you know, media and government have lied and been caught lying on exactly. such huge things. It's easy. That peop- exactly. So, or they just, you know, characterize it as all of its propaganda. Yeah. Um, for the reason yeah, I you know, just mentioned. It's bizarre when you hang out with the same crowd that, that, that lied and said there were WMDs in, in Iraq. I mean, it, it's, that, that's what I mean. So when you're getting that dishonest and the thing is Pomerantsev being perceptive, being smarter actually has less of an excuse for this. You know, I, I kind of I hold him to a higher standard um, because he can't he can't he can't pretend to be naive about this. And, of and, and his kind of fake naivete in his book is also just it's kind of risable. Um, and, and he also he makes Bill Browder out to be a hero in his book. Bill Browder is, an, is another vulture capitalist. I mean, even even people, even liberals and, and investors in Russia laugh when they see how Bill Browder has tried to remake himself as like the Andrei Sakharov of billionaires. I mean, it's just fucking absurd. You know, um, these guys were all thieves. They're just thieves. They go in, they, they tr- take advantage of a situation. They pit two other thieves against each other and, you know, and green mail and cash out. Um, and, and what I thought was most disturbing for me reading the Pomerantz of Weiss, um, paper report, but it was for the NED and the Legatum Institute, and they presented it at the NED, was that at the conclusion, they said, well, what should be done? And so what should be done is we should fund and finance um, uh, more anti-corruption NGOs. Anti-corruption NGOs today are what human rights NGOs were in the, in the, in the 80s, you know, in 90s, in terms of like being able to bring regimes down and promote liberal values. Yeah. You know, and I, I find that so interesting because I've been getting a lot into that by by researching um, uh, Omidyar. And, mm-hmm. you know, Omidyar reminds me of a, of a, of a sort of Soros 2.0. And that's what that's what Omidyar invests in when he invests with USAID, um, you know, in places around the world. And USAID wants to it's in we're in we want a situation to change for whatever reason, whether it's for business reasons or geostrategic reasons. You just you just turn the heat up on on corruption because there's always corruption. It's going to piss people off and you don't solve the corruption. You just you just harness the energy and anger that corruption brings to, to bring about your own desired change, you know. And then you screw everyone again. Yeah. It's in a, it's kind of I mean, it's in a similar, slightly similar vein to what Russia today is doing, but mm-hmm, in a sure. way it's, I mean, it's far more dangerous because a lot of the times that the U S does it with these NGOs or these investors do it with NGOs, they do it in countries which are already, as you said, unstable to begin yes. with and already have yes. a lot of corruption. Yes. Yes. It's a lot more effective. I exactly. mean, Russia today is annoying the shit out of, I think some people, you know, establishment people here. Um, but it's not going to like, cause this country to crumble. <laughs> it's just not, you know? So, um, uh, uh, but, but, you know, I, I, I don't blame the Russians for, for doing it. I mean, why wouldn't you give it back if you have some extra cash on hand, give it back to the people Absolutely, they give yeah. it to, but, uh, 
And, and, you know, in RT, I mean, look, they're just filling a void. They're filling a void. They're, they're going beyond that. They do also, they also go into, they also try to like kind of muddle things, muddle reality up even more, but, but they also fill a void where a lot of stories that just didn't or wouldn't come out through, through a discredited mainstream establishment media, they'll allow it to come out. And, um, you know, relates sort of to Peter um, Pomerant stuff, which is that there does seem to be an alignment that didn't exist as strongly before between sort of the neocon faction in DC with the liberal interventionist faction, where maybe part of this liberal interventionist faction wanted to seize on some of these liberal politics, like maybe even, you know, parts of the Occupy movement's energy. But once they started to see Russia Today utilizing that that energy from the left, they kind of, you know, they wanted to sort of break off that relationship to some degree. But I guess what's more troubling to me is just this general alignment that seems to have happened after the first attempt to get into Syria between, you know, factions like the, you know, the, the Kagan family, um, uh, you know, the more obvious neocon um, think tanks like the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, American Enterprise Institute, Foreign Policy Initiative. And now there seems to be sort of an alignment, at least, you know, on Ukraine with other think tanks like the Atlantic Council, Brookings, um, places that are more characterized as sort of quasi, you know, liberal or liberal interventionist or even, you know, Brookings, which is ran by um Strobe Talbot, or he's the the head of Brookings now, who is oh, considered a cold warrior Democrat, um, you know, who, yeah. who coincidentally was the one who mentored Victoria Newland at her first big post. Um, Strobe did. Oh, I thought she was. Uh, OK, so, I, so that's kind of like the link between Kagan and and the, and the Clinton. Is that, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to cut you off, but like from, from what I've seen, the liberal interventionists and the neocons have always been you know, um, more or less half aligned. in bed. Yeah. I mean, they, the, you know, the, the liberal interventionists are squeamish neocons, you know, and, uh, and so the neocons kind of, uh, find ways to, to overcome the squeamishness, uh, you know, they're kind of, they're just chicken shit neocons, I guess is, but, but they both have the same horrible ideas about the way the world should be. You know, they're very similar. They're the ones that, um, that got us into the into the Kosovo War. I mean, it was the liberal interventionists and the neocons. That was their production, and um, you know, and the neocons when it came to the uh, Iraq War, uh, th- they were able to shame any potential any of the liberal interventionists who were a little bit shaky about it. Of course, a lot of most of them were very for it, if I remember correctly. And the ones who weren't, they could be easily be shamed. Well, you know, look, you. We were together in, in Kosovo and look how great that turned out. What are you going to let these poor Iraqis die? You're going to let them be raped? Blah, blah, blah. We have to do this. We have to save them. We have to rescue them. And by that logic, they were right. What argument could you make as a liberal interventionist against not going into Iraq except for the fact that it was crazy? <laughs> you know, of course. Um, yeah. and, I mean, and, and when you rewind back to the tail end of the Clinton administration, I mean, Clinton's rhetoric towards Iraq was virtually identical yeah. to some yeah. of what Bush was saying. So, it is it is kind of interesting that I mean it's interesting but it's also disturbing to think that as you said they're mostly in bed with each other. Yeah. They're reluctant neo the liberal interventionists are more reluctant neocons some of the time but mm-hmm. when they do align completely it almost seems like there's virtually no debate in the public yep. sphere and that's what's disturbing. It's like yeah. so 
are we to assume that when they're not completely aligned, that's the only time we see this kind of debate in the matrix? Well, and you know what's, yeah, and what's interesting is, so it's really only, I think, um, you know, the old, old so-called realists like Kissinger, I think, right, who's, who's really not totally down with this. And I think his crowd was not really totally down with the Iraq war as well. Um, which is kind of ironic. And then, and then some of the liber- you know, the, the Ron, some of the Ron Paul people. Um, and then, and then if you, you'd have to really, they'll go on the, on the left, like Barbara Lee and, um, and, uh, you know, just on the left, basically for the, for the real sort of anti-war crowd that's been anti-war on, on all of these. Um, um, yeah, I, and, and the other thing, look again, like I said earlier, Russia doesn't have a local lobby. There's nobody here who there's, there's nobody that has sympathy for any kind of natural sympathy for Russia. Russia only plays the role of Hollywood villain. And, um, so there's really nobody who sees that there's a lot to be gained by arguing, um, against going, you know, against like getting involved in this war or, um, or cautioning or anything like that. There's just not a lot to be gained for your career. And there's a lot to be gained, even if everything goes to hell, even if things go really, really awful, the deeper we get involved, no one's career is going to be hurt from that. It's only going to be hurt for arguing against this. That's just the sad reality. Whose career was hurt by, by pushing us into the Iraq war. They're all around here. They're all still telling us what we should do. Um, you know, so that's just the that's just the fucking sad truth about living in a in a in an imperial power. Well, and it's also it's yeah, I mean for sure. And it's also sad to think about just how easy it is for just one person or a couple people working with or working together with lobbyists for for example the Georgian government. Um, you know, like when Eli Lake, I think he wrote a story that was basically made up about how Russia bombed or attacked a U.S. embassy in Georgia. Do you remember hearing about this? <laughs> no, and, I'm not surprised. And, yeah, and it was later found right? out that he was basically just getting wined and dined by this oh, lobby right. firm yes. called Orion Strategies. Yes. Yeah. And, Randy Shinnaman's firm, yeah, of course. And then the guy who also started the Washington Free Beacon was also part of that same lobby yeah. group. So it's just all these people just come out of the same poisonous, yeah. <laughs> you know, sort of... Um, symbiotic relationship and but i mean but that's those are just the sort of newer generation of them i mean these these sort of older generation that that got us into this disastrous bush foreign policy um they're still all there i mean robert kagan seems more influential than he ever was before i mean and that's i guess it's just like what can we possibly do now at this point i mean when you it's even have, isn't it? Yeah. it is depressing when you even have places like vice, um, giving, you know, I mean, they gave like 20 minutes to George Soros to just lecture, uh, the, the audience on why we need to arm the Ukrainian government. And it's just like this cartoon mm. done in this hipster cartoon style with drawings of Putin is like, God. you know, flashy yeah. vice style animation. And it's just like, wow. what is going on here? I guess for me, that's more disturbing than almost sort of the worst time periods during the Bush administration when like Fox News was at its most hysterical, because that's easy to pick up on as being propaganda. That's immediately, you know, if you're perceptive enough, you can see that that's propaganda. But it seems really, really hard these days to be able to point to that kind of stuff. The empire's um, 
ideology and propaganda is very adaptive. I mean, I think that's kind of, that's the lesson, isn't it? Like it's, it's like capitalism itself. It's very adaptive. So it can be, it can also, uh, be cool and hip. I mean, that's what, you know, there's, um, you were bringing up Eli Lake. Well, I think of uh, this guy, Ben Judah, um, who writes it, who's a big, now he's a big cheese at Politico. And he, he published one of the biggest fuck ups I've seen in journalism in, in a long, like it's, it's, it's not quite up there with the, with the Rolling Stone rape story, but you know, in terms of foreign policy stories, it's close. So this was the end of last year. He got uh, the big scoop, uh, and huge political splash and then was everywhere else that, um, in 2008, when Putin's war, Putin and Georgia were first at war, I think it was, that Putin supposedly proposed to the president of Poland that the two of them carve up Ukraine. Oh, my God. And, and this was supposed to prove, because they're all trying to prove that actually Putin has been planning all along to take Crimea and to start a war in Ukraine, that it had nothing to do with the Maidan revolution or any of that, that it was really his plan. And, and this was actual proof, finally. And it was this great source that said it and so on. Well, it turned out that the source uh, was Radislav Sierkowski or whatever the hell his name is. Um, it's Ann Applebaum's husband. Ann Applebaum, you know, the neocon from the Washington Post. Um, he's, he wow. was Poland's foreign minister. He's now the, the marshal of the SAM. He's, he's the speaker of Poland's parliament. Hardcore neocon. He was an AEI guy. Um, and when they found out he was the source... The Polish press then mobbed him and said, are you, is this for real? Did he really say this when? And he couldn't get his, his story right to people who actually knew because he couldn't, his dates on when the president was here and there and when he was supposedly met, like nothing added up. And so he finally just came out and held a press conference and admitted he'd completely lied, made the whole thing up. Wow. And, uh, and it never happened. And uh, this was a huge deal in Poland, almost totally unreported here. But all the people who had re-reported the political story by Ben Judah, like if you look at the economist version of the original story about Putin offering to carve up, you know, in 2008, it proves that he, he planned this war all along. It has a big, you know, correction at the top. Um, I, actually, the FT did something about this. The political story still stands completely. And, you know, it's funny, the, this is one of the alarm bells for me, the Pomerantsev's book and the acknowledgement, it's, it, it thanks Ben Judah as the main um, uh, reader of his book, you know, basically his corrector, his editor, his outside what? editor, I guess you'd call it, right? So it's, it's, it's Ben Judah, Michael Weiss, and Pomerantsev. They're all, all these guys were like, so I don't even know, you know, he writes, it's, it's very meta. It's like meta neocon. He, he's writing about how the Russians create this meta reality, but so do these neocons. And it's all, you know, like, who's the, who's the fucking Kremlin and who's the neocon here? I don't even know anymore. It's, well, that's what, it, that's what's so interesting about all of this is that it almost takes on, it's like you just described, it's like meta upon meta. Yeah. It makes me wonder if, is there some kind of larger strategy here at play or is that just the best they can come up with in their it's sort adaptive. of. I think the ideology is just adapting in a, you know, think of it like species or something. The old neocons, they just, it's a ruined brand even if those people are all still around. And, and uh, you just, it's actually, look, I, I mean, I, it took me a while before I even thought of um, saying, well, what the hell's going, who is this Pomerantsev guy? Because at first I thought, oh, he's pretty smart. He's, he's sensitive about Russia. He seems to be pretty hostile to them, but, you know, he seems like he actually kind of knows, knows at least this part of the story pretty well. And, I, and 
look, I'll, I still read them and I'll still take what I think is useful and, and right. And I'll criticize what I think is wrong. This doesn't like, I don't completely reject him because of this, but it pisses me off. I don't like being manipulated. And I don't think most people do. Yeah. Well, if he, let's just say just for argument's sake that he is being completely manipulative and, or, and he's intentionally spreading propaganda, then he's, he's one of the best I've ever seen at it. I mean, <laughs> he's one of the, he really is. I mean, you might say he learned from Surkov. He might, he, I think yeah. he would probably think, think, be proud of that. I mean, it seems to me that, that the neocons have found that, you know, bashing and killing dark skinned, um, uh, you know, Muslims, Arabs, it's like, it's, it's just a bummer for them. And they all now, they love having Russia and Putin as the villains that they can just blow up into this huge new cause. And, uh, and they love Surkov. You know, these guys are like, they can put their, their great educations, uh, to work now, like postmodern theory and all the other horse shit, you know, and, uh, and sound a lot smarter than, than doofuses like Jamie Kerchick and, and, um, you know, Bill Crystal and so on. I, I think they, I think they like this. And, and I, I see Pomerantsev as, as kind of aping his idea and the neocon idea of what Sirkov represents. I see him even ape, trying to ape kind of like a, an Adam Curtis analytical approach, but mm-hmm. flipping it on its head. Like if you look at, so he's a fellow at the Legatum Institute, you know what their slogan is? You should look it up. It's prosperity through capitalism and, and democracy. <laughs> prosperity huh. through capitalism you know that that's that's what he stands for fucking nuts so um but but you know anybody can appropriate um the right the libertarians uh, on the right have been very good at appropriating a lot of stuff from the left and making free markets seem like a left-wing radical idea you know well that's and that's what the neocons have been saying for years i mean they went through this sort of process after you know, like post Fahrenheit 9-11, when it was kind of like the neocons were at their most embarrassed and shamed, they kind of, they kind of were going out there and trying to say, trying to like have a discussion about how do we make the argument now? You know, what, what can we do now? Because obviously we were able to make it before, but that's really all that is important is how do we make the argument now, especially like at the absolute worst point in the U.S. economy, they were going out there asking like, how do we get people to rally behind Warren now when like our economy is just in total shambles. And I do think that there's a, there's, I mean, there's a distinct sign that they are still trying, it's like an adapt, they're adapting, but it's still a work in progress. They're there. It's a real time, you know, adaptation that's taking place. And I think it's most evident when you see that hearing um, that was supposedly put on by Ed Royce, probably some, you know, other neocons orchestrated that. But you have Peter Pomerostov sitting on one side of the table and Liz Wall on the other side. And a guy from the uh, Heritage Foundation. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. You're, it's almost like they're trying three different methods, you know, <laughs> yeah. all at once. And like, um, I mean, obviously, if I if I was them, I would choose Peter Pomeroy stuff because. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he they they you know, but um, uh, he's British. They tend to be a little bit more um, better at expressing themselves, having <laughs> a little clever. But uh, um, yeah, no, it's it, look. It, this also has to do with the massive disconnect, um, the the massive disconnect between Washington and the like, like in Washington, D.C. and the sort of the 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 
foreign policy expert crowd and so on, you know, uh, great power games and all this shit, like nothing's changed for them. Nothing is really different. And they just assume, you know, it's, it's just a question of where we move our pieces around the globe. And, and I, I think they don't quite grasp most of them. Um, at all, like how little taste there is. I mean, m most countries, most populations, you know, like it or not, li like a good war every now and then, especially if they can win without dying and they get to kill a lot of the other side. But like people have n very little stomach for war now. People are, are hurting, you know, and struggling. And the wars were, were really awful and they forced people to wake up to this shit, you know, and they're going to stay awake for a while. There's almost nothing you can do about it except maybe just ignore them and go forward with your war again. But uh, um, I just, I feel like there's just a massive disconnect. They're trying really hard to get us psyched for some kind of war somewhere. Um, you know, the ISIS just didn't last long enough to be legitimately scary. Um, uh, Syria, that didn't work out. Uh, Russia, you know, I, who wants to go to war with Russia over Ukraine? Like, it's just it, people are, aren't going to rally to Putin's side. But like, who the hell wants war with with Russia? And that's that's actually serious shit, because, you know, this is going on on Russia's border. I right. mean, besides the defense contracting companies, who, yeah. what, yeah. what oligarchs would even benefit from that? I mean, because it's not capitalism versus communism anymore. Yeah, you know, so it's just, it is, it is, it's truly insane. And I mean, it's not. I guess it doesn't surprise me that you know a lot of these so-called liberal interventionists would be so eager to go to war with Russia. Um, just as an example, I was listening to. Um, Fred Kagan and his father, Don Kagan, on the day after 9-11, they were actually on the radio advocating for a full U.S. ground invasion of Palestine. And, <laughs> Jesus and, and they followed up by saying wow. this would bring the peace and stability we need for that region. And it just blew my mind because after everything that's happened since then, clearly that would have, I mean, that I, I can't imagine besides short of going to war with actual war with Russia, the, you know, bringing us to the brink of World War Three, something like that would be, you know, would probably lead to something like a World War Three or just a complete, um, complete chaos in the Middle East. I mean, ISIS might have even existed back then had we, you know, had the U.S. invaded Palestine. So. These people I don't think are, we would have even known what to have done if we invaded. What exactly. would we do then? I don't I mean, know. Unless you're going to open up death camps or something. Like, what do you actually do when you invade there? Like, Israelis do it every day, you know? I'm like, uh, what are you actually going to do then? These guys are, they're just, they're just fucking such idiots, you know? No, And there's no one around to slap them in the face. Um, it's just really frustrating. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, the, the the big wonder is how this country does does keep, staying so powerful and i, I think it's just it, it's just it's kind of like old rome in a way i mean uh um the economy and the culture are still comparative to others still just a lot stronger than even as fucked up as they are they're still just a lot stronger compared to other parts of the world and it just sort of rolls on on its own and then you have these fucking loonies you know trying to thinking they're stage managing the empire and just only causing problems every single time only screwing shit up it's amazing yeah it is amazing <laughs> and i i wish we could end our discussion on a more positive note but nah, 
But yeah, thanks so much for talking to me, Mark. If you're interested in doing this again at some point, I'd love to talk to you more in depth about what's actually going on in Ukraine because we didn't really get uh-huh. get a chance to go there. We just well, we we had a very we interesting discussion. Neocons, which is yeah, <laughs> which so. is much needed. Yeah, um, it, you know, it was trendy back in like 2003, 2006, <laughs> but it's it was fun. It's not not happening anymore, man. It's, no. it's no. But if they're coming it. back, then Bastion will be coming back. So you know, we'll all have fun with that. Um, no, it'll suck. It's just, that's, it will suck. Um, but anyways, yeah, no, thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening to Media Roots Radio. This podcast is the product of many long hours of hard work and love. If you want to encourage our voice, please consider supporting us as we continue to speak from outside party lines. Even the smallest donations help us with operating costs. If you do want to donate, please give a shout out to Media Roots Radio in the information line so my brother and I can thank you the next time we do a podcast. Thanks so much.